He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our street. But he will say, I tell you, do you I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, again through the power of your Spirit to examine our hearts, to see whether we are truly on the inside, whether we have taken, gone through the narrow door that leads to your kingdom and eternal life. We pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in every heart, that you would use this passage to encourage believers, and to wake unbelievers to their plight, and that you would use this to help them to see the need for repentance and faith. And we pray that you would empower them in this by regenerating their hearts, again, through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Have you ever felt like you were on the outside looking in? Have you ever felt like you're an outsider? Well, if you have, you're in good company. Because throughout Luke's gospel account, outsiders figure prominently. Writing, remember, as a Gentile to the Gentile Theophilus, Luke's gospel account speaks to a broader Gentile audience. Jesus is presented as the one who welcomes the outsider. This is a recurring theme in Luke. Not just Gentiles, but all the disenfranchised of of the first century ancient Near East, Samaritans, Women, children, tax collectors, the sick, lepers, and the crippled. Luke 19.10 reads, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And Several of the best-known parables in the Scriptures are found only in Luke, the so-called Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich man, and Lazarus. They all communicate how Jesus welcomes the outsider. Throughout Luke's gospel account, Jesus himself is presented as an outsider. He is cast aside from the religious leaders, from the political authorities, and from the social elites. From a cultural standpoint, Jesus is on the outside looking in. 
Yes, he does get invited to the posh parties. But his teaching invariably leads to rejection by the religious, political, and social muckety-mucks. Our passage this morning reveals that it is those who are on the societal inside who are actually on the outside. While those who appear to be on the outside are actually the ones who are going in. There's a wall with a door in it. Some people are on one side trying to get out. And others are on the other side trying to get in. Many are pushing their way out of the kingdom of God while others are pushing them their way in. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. And many think they're actually in, but are out. While others are striving to get in. So Luke, Luke 13, 22 to 30 is recorded on a different occasion from what we saw last week, but it's really continuing the same theme. It's connected topically with the previous passage. And after describing what the kingdom of God is like in verses 18 to 21, Jesus now tells us who is on the inside of the kingdom of God. So before what it was like and now who's in it. God is on the inside. But many are on the outside. Who's going to be outside? Who's going to be inside? Who is part of the kingdom of God? So this morning, our three points from this passage are from verses 22 to 24, the narrow door. From verses 25 to 27, cast outside. And verses 28 to 30, outside versus inside. So first of all, verses 22 to 24, the narrow door. This passage begins with a road sign. Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. Remember, this is the last stage of his earthly ministry. He has turned his face resolutely towards Jerusalem as of Luke 9.51. Towards Jerusalem, the, the religious and political and cultural capital of Israel. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem by the end of Luke 19. Next week, Lord willing... Jerusalem will figure prominently again where Jesus directly refers to his death in the city. As he mourns, as he laments over those who have rejected him and have rejected eternal life. Now remember, as Jesus began his journey to Jerusalem, he was at the base of Mount Hermon after being on the Mount of Transfiguration where his glory was revealed momentarily to Peter and James and John. It's really only a few days' journey between Mount Hermon Herman and Jerusalem. But Jesus takes most of a year to get there. He's in no rush. Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem right on time. He's taking his time because he has work to do. He has teaching that he wants to do on the road, and so he's teaching the people and he's teaching the disciples, preparing the disciples to continue his ministry once he has ascended to heaven. So it's no surprise that we find Jesus here on the road to to Jerusalem once again teaching. And as Jesus is teaching, someone asks him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now this is, after all, a relevant question, given the fact that, that Jesus has been talking about the coming judgment, about the division that he brings. It's a relevant question given that he has just been teaching about the, the hidden, but powerful, pervasive, and 
permeating advance of the kingdom of God. The kingdom advances often imperceptibly, but but how many are going to be there? And many Jews had concluded that all Israel would be saved, but they did not consider that it was only elect Israel, only spiritual Israel who would be saved, and that it would be only a remnant of Israel who would be saved. So Jesus responds to the question. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So then enter through the narrow door. What's the door? The door is a metaphor for entry into the banquet of blessing on the day of the Lord. Jesus is saying that you must enter through him. Enter the kingdom through Jesus. Turn away from your faith and turn away rather from your sin and put your faith in him. That's the door. Jesus is the door. As Jesus teaches in John 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the door was standing right there in front of them. But precious few would have ever even imagined that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that they'd be saved. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 So then strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word that's translated strive here gives us our English word agonize. The pictures of intensity and great effort. That's what it means to strive. In fact, the word that's translated athlete in the ESV version of 1 Corinthians 9.25 comes from the same verb. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Citizens of the kingdom of God strive for an imperishable wreath, the crown of eternal life. Picture an Olympic sprinter putting in countless hours in the gym and on the track in preparation for the race. And then on a race day, they're in the blocks, every muscle coiled and ready to launch, eyes and mind focused solely on the finish line. And at the sound of the gun, the sprinter explodes out of the blocks onto the track, arms and legs pumping in a blur, the body pushed to its limits right through the finish line and into victory. That's what it means to strive. But you might be asking, well, aren't we saved apart from works? Isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Yes. The idea here is, is not of, of working your way to God, but of working hard and listening and responding to the message of Christ. It's, it's, it's being earnest about salvation. It's not allowing yourself to be distracted by anything, not fleshly attitudes or desires, not even things that appear good, but will weigh you down and, and keep you from running your, the race that is set before you. Listen to Thomas Manson. The reply of Jesus begins by asserting the way of salvation is a door which God opens and man enters. The entry cannot be made without God. The gate of heaven opens only from the inside. 
But also, man has to make his own way in once the door is open. This is not easy. The entrance is narrow. It's a case of, of struggling through rather than rolling, than strolling in. If men fail to enter, it is not that God is unwilling to admit them, but that they will not enter on the only terms in which entrance is possible. So this is a mystery, but again, we're seeing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We see this often, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Have you ever tried to, to climb a rope? We had to do this in gym class, in, in fitness tests, and back then I couldn't do it. There was a brief window when I could do it, but but now my body weight to strength ratio is will not allow me to do that anymore. But it's hard work to climb a rope. As we, we climb this rope to, to, to heaven, we strive, we, we agonize to climb, we, we do what we can to climb the rope, but, but when you have the heavenly perspective, realize that it was God who was holding the other end of the rope. He's pulling you up the whole time. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You will find that you've been striving in the strength that God provides. Now, some of us are aware of that even today. As you strive to, to hear and obey Christ in the midst of challenges, challenges in your, to your faith, as you deal with, with grief, as we deal with grief as a church, we're conscious of the supernatural strength that God provides, helping us in, to respond in a way that is counter to the flesh, counter to the way we would have naturally responded if left to our own devices. This is the work of the Lord. Anxiety gives way to peace. Anger gives way to love. Fear gives way to faith. Grumbling gives way to thankfulness. So, but then the question again is, will those who are saved be few? You look at the, the mass of, of humanity, even to those, those mass of people who are gathered around Jesus. Will there be many or will there be few who will enter into the kingdom and eternal life? Well, Jesus does not answer the question directly here, at least not yet. He doesn't say explicitly whether there will be many or few whether, who will be saved. He does the answer the question explicitly in other places, notably in, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who, so and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But here, when it, when it comes to whether many or few will be saved, the questioner didn't even really need to ask the question. Whoever it was just needed to look around. Can you consider all the people who had, had thronged around Jesus? Very, very few had turned to him in faith and repentance. Jesus ministered to multitudes, but very few followed him. And we only need to look around as well. All have seen the testimony of God in creation, but how many have actually sought God? Many have heard the gospel, but how many have responded to faith, in faith? It was true in Jesus' day and it is true in ours. Yes, there are periods of revival, but that is not the norm. That has not been the norm throughout history. We pray for revival. We, we hope for revival. 
These are brief periods in, in the span of, of human history. So Jesus doesn't say here whether many or few will be saved, but he does say that many will seek to enter the kingdom and will not be able. There are many who, who seek to enter the kingdom, but they seek to do so on their own terms, in their own way, by their own means. And they'll never be able to enter. Many will think that they are saved, but aren't. Many are self-deceived. The focus here, focus here is not on, on looking around, it's, it's looking within. Jesus is essentially saying here, make sure you aren't self-deceived. Make sure you are among the number. Make sure you are one who has entered through the door. Make sure you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, you also need to ask yourself that question. Are you among the number? Are you on the inside? Have you entered the narrow door? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Remember Luke 13, 3 and 5. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now there are many. There are many who have false assurance of salvation. There are, there are many who think they are saved but are not. I've also encountered many who struggle with assurance of salvation, who, who doubt their salvation. And there's some here who would, would hear a sermon like this and, and would, would come away with the conclusion that they're not saved. Now, I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's not my job to convince you of these things. But you can be encouraged that if your faith is truly in Jesus Christ, even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Assurance does not equal salvation. There are many who are assured, but are not saved. There are many who are not assured, but who are actually saved. But you all, we all must examine ourselves to ensure that we are truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we have truly entered through the narrow door of Christ Jesus and faith in him and him alone. So this is an invitation. This is a call for those who have ears to hear. The door is narrow. The way is hard. The enemy is powerful. And as for you, enter. Strive to enter. Others, friends, and family may stay outside, but do not let anything hinder you. Enter. Strive to enter. But those who will not enter on God's terms will find themselves, as we see in verses 25 to 27, locked out. Second point, they will be locked out. The focus here is, isn't only on the fact that the door is narrow and it's the only way, but also that it is only open for a short time. Not only is the way narrow, but, but access through the door will soon be closed. The master will shut and bolt the door. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the Lord. One day he will shut and bolt the door. And there will be no opportunity for entry for all eternity. Judgment is coming. Turn to Jesus now. But many will be caught off guard. Think of the parable of the ten virgins, virgins in Matthew 25. Five virgins are wise and, and they are ready. But the other five are foolish and unprepared. The, the five wise virgins had oil in their lamps, 
but the foolish five had no oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they fell asleep. This is a metaphor for death. But at midnight, when the cry came, here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. The virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and went. But the foolish realized quickly that they had no oil. So they, they ran to buy oil, but in the meantime, the door was shut, and they were shut out. So they cried, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So Jesus warned, Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Well, these two are going to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. They're going to call Jesus Lord, but he is not their Lord. So he replies, I do not know where you came from. In other words, I do not know you. Now they claim to know Jesus, but Jesus does not know them. And they're frantic now. They say, we ate in your and drank in your presence. You taught on our streets. They've been physically close to Jesus. Imagine being in Jesus' presence, but rejecting him. They'd seen Jesus with their own eyes. They'd heard him with their own ears. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard his teaching. They'd sat down for dinner with Jesus. But eating and drinking in the proximity of Jesus is very different from fellowshipping with Jesus. You could be near Jesus physically, but far from him spiritually. Friends, you are near Jesus physically every time you sit next to a true believer in church. But are you far from him spiritually? Likewise, hearing Jesus' teaching and believing Jesus' teaching are two entirely separate things. These people heard but did not accept Jesus' teaching. They did not respond to his teaching in faith and repentance. They did not receive Jesus as their Lord. Now, friends, you hear Jesus taught in this church every single week. But do you, do you personally believe and receive Jesus? He says again in verse 27, emphatically, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Again, I don't know where you come from. I don't know you. But I know your sin. He'll say to me, he'll say to them, rather, depart from me. All of you workers of evil do not receive an open door, but open rebuke. He's saying, I know what you're like. I know what's in your heart. Similarly, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these people in Matthew 7 are claiming not just to have been around Jesus, but to have actually engaged in the same ministry as Jesus. But he knows what is in the heart. And so he calls them workers of iniquity, workers of lawlessness. Friends, going to church can't save you. Good works can't save you. Right doctrine can't save you. Christian parents can't save you. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven 
among which men must be saved. Acts 4.12. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. You must know Jesus personally. You must know Jesus savingly. He must be your Savior. He must be your Lord. You must know Him and He must know you. But imagine what it would be like to, to see that door slam shut. And to hear that bolt slide closed. Locking you outside forever. The door of God's mercy is closed to you forever. And all that remains for you is judgment. God's righteous judgment for your sins. It's pitiful, really. They're desperate to get in, but it'll be too late. This makes me think of Noah's Ark. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness. During the time of the preparation of the ark, Noah would have been warning the people of the coming flood, but the people had rejected the warning. And during the whole time that, that the ark was being prepared, God was being patient, 1 Peter 3.20. The building of the ark was there as a testimony of what was coming, but the people rejected the warning. There was room for many more, but only Noah and his family went in, and God shut the door. The great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven opened, unleashing the deluge. People who had mocked Noah were now screaming for help, but it was too late. Only eight people from the whole face of the earth were spared God's judgment. It makes me think of the, the threat of nuclear war and the, the movies about nuclear war that terrorized me in my childhood. The bombs have been dropped. The bunker door has been shut and barred. And its bunker, its occupants hunkered down far below. But a terrified man runs to the door and starts banging, glancing in terror over his shoulder as he sees the mushroom cloud rising in the distance. He hammers on the door until his fist starts to bleed. Until the shockwave hits him and he evaporates in the blast. So finally, let's look at verses 28 to 30. Outside versus inside. Drowning in the flood or evaporating in the shock wave of a nuclear bomb are nothing compared to what happens next, to what happens after death. So now Jesus describes what happens at the final judgment. He describes the eternal state of those who are on the outside versus those who are on the inside. It's going to be many surprises. Many who expected to be in are out. Many who they expected to be out will be in. So I have three subpoints here. First of all, the cast out in verse 28. Jesus says in verse 28 that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a common description in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, that describes the response of those to whom Jesus has commanded to depart from him into the eternal torments of hell. Don't let familiarity desensitize you from what is going on here. Don't be desensitized to the horrors of hell. The New Testament is full of descriptions of what hell will be like. Matthew 25, 41. He'll say to those on his left, Depart from you, curse it. It is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or Mark 9, 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14, 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
we can't even imagine the horrors of hell. But upon hearing those words, depart from me, depart from the Lord Jesus Christ, unbelievers will be sent away from God and everything that is good and holy forever. But now we think about this from the perspective of, of Christians who love and worship God. These unbelievers were persistent in knocking on the door and begging for entrance, but they're also persistent in their self-righteousness and their self-deception. They think that they deserve heaven because of their good works. And they claim to want to go there. And it's true in a sense, they do want to go there. They think that they desire heaven. They don't want God's judgment. But they don't want God either. In fact, they don't want God more than they don't want God's judgment. So the unbeliever's aversion towards God is greater than their aversion towards suffering. And J.C. Rowell's excellent book, Holiness, and if, if you have not read that book, you really must. And if you, you have read it, you really ought to read it again. He says, The inhabitants of heaven rest continually, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and sing the praise of the Lamb. And he asks, How can an unholy man find pleasure in an occupation such as this? I know not what others may think, but to me it does, it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. Friends, heaven would be hell for the unbeliever because the unbeliever hates heaven's king. But these people expected to be in the kingdom of heaven. They saw themselves as having a common heritage with the patriarchs and the prophets. They expected to be in fellowship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in heaven. But they rejected the fathers and the prophets, Luke 6, 22 and 23. They had killed the prophets, Luke 11, 49 to 51. In rejecting God's prophets and their message, they were actually rejecting God. They're rejecting his plan. They're rejecting eternal life with him. In the hardness of their hearts, they refused to turn to Jesus and be saved. John the Baptist, remember, warned in Luke 3, 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Similarly, in, in John 8, 39, the answer Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Abraham said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. Friends, your family tree cannot save you, but only faith in him who died upon the tree. This is presumption. They're in for a rude awakening. There will be agony. There will be no hope for relief. No one forced them to go there. They're really getting what they want. And somehow they'll actually be able to see heaven. We see the same sort of thing with the rich man in hell. He was able to see Lazarus in heaven. They're going to see Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and, and all the saints in the presence of the Lord. This is going to add to the misery of the unbeliever. Imagine someone wandering through the desert for days, slowly dying of thirst, and they see an oasis, a fresh clear water. But the oasis is surrounded by a wall a hundred feet high, made of glass that's two inches thick. There's nothing that they can do to get over the wall to slake their thirst. But the reality is, even if they could get over the wall, they wouldn't. Because they hate everyone inside. 
Normally, death or dehydration would kill them within days, but, life, but they would live on in more and more agony. But on the inside are the saints who have gone before, Peter and James and John and Paul and Augustine and Anselm and Calvin and John Owen and John Bunny and Jonathan Edwards and R.C. Sproul. And many of us here, many of our brothers and sisters who have been but are no longer part of this church family, Will you be there? Will you be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, now Jesus turns in verse 29 to discuss those who are gathered in. So Jesus says that people will come from east and west and north and south and recline a table in the kingdom of God. These Jews who were speaking to Jesus were on the outside. The people from north and south and east and west were with Jesus at the table. People are going to come from all over the world. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. As well as the scattered Jewish elect. The mustard seed of verses 18 and 19 is grown into a tree that the birds of the air will nest in. I said earlier that that Jesus did not answer the question directly of of how many would be there, whether it's many or few. But here we see the answer. Not many of the Jews who witnessed Jesus' ministry would enter, but many others would enter. Even many other Gentiles would enter. These Jews might have been with Jesus at the table, but they will not be with Jesus at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. They were at the table as as Jesus ate in their homes, but they would have excluded Gentiles from their table. And now the Gentiles are at the table. But these unbelieving Jews are exiled. They're excluded. Now those on the inside are outside, and those on the outside are inside. They will feast with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah 25, 69 paints the picture for us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is now spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Lord God will wipe all tears from their faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. But we said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is a, a sumptuous feast fit for a king. But the nations will be there. You and I will be there. So finally and briefly in verse 30. The last will be first. And the first last. These Jews who were first became last. Now the Gentiles who were lost become first. This is double judgment for the Jews because not only are they excluded, but the hated Gentiles who were excluded are now included. The insiders are outside and the outsiders are inside. This theme is going to continue in verses 31 to 35. We'll see next week, Lord willing, as we see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem's lack of response. Jesus has been warning his own people, but many of them have rejected to them. Very, very few have, have turned to him in faith and repentance. 
you must turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. The door, though narrow, is now open, but it will not remain so forever. It will close, and it might close soon. It will soon be shut and bolted forever. Do not reject this opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. There are plenty of seats at the table. Enter and dine with Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for who you are, that you have, even though you are holy, 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 that you have provided a way for sinners, sinners like us, Lord, to enter through the door of Jesus Christ and to enjoy fellowship with you now and for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that there are any here who have not yet turned to you in faith and repentance, that you would regenerate their hearts, that you would grant them faith, help them to see who Jesus is, help them to see that Jesus is the door, and help them to enter by him. And Lord, for the many here who are truly saved, we pray that you would help us to be encouraged and built up as we meditate on these things, as we meditate on what we deserve, on your great grace and mercy towards us through Jesus Christ, the door to eternal life. We praise you for this passage. We praise you, Lord, for the truths that it contains. We pray for how it reveals who you are. We pray that you would help us to worship you for who you are, to begin through the strength that you provide to live for you and to give glory to you for your name's sake. And all God's people said, Amen.